sweet thing off of Astral Weeks. This is Free Association, and we're listening to the Van Morrison Astral Weeks record, and Ryan Walsh is here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Hello. Yeah. And we have, uh, we have his new book here, A Secret History of 1968 Astral Weeks. And, I've, God, I love this book. You've had a crazy year. This has been that last year. It was just this book really took off. Congratulations on that. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. So I wanted to get into, um, I love your your description of how you, your reaction to the record. You know, yeah. I, I love the record. I think the record's a masterpiece. We talked about this before. Yeah. But um, I'll tell you my first reaction to it. My first reaction to it was very different than yours. My first reaction to it was I had gone through a breakup uh-huh. and I listened to it and that song in particular and I was devastated. Yeah. I mean I was in tears. It really and somebody else told me later they oh. said this is a record you put on when it's raining outside and and your your experience in the book was yeah. like I was inspired, I was hopeful and I yeah. was like man I'm imp- I'm impressed. You weren't consoled, you <laughs> no, were further exactly. devastated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was really down in the dumps, you know. It was like yeah. so I that's really interesting take on it. You you listen you listened to that record and you after a breakup and you actually felt was it the music, the 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 virtuosity of the music is that what really Yeah, and that's not to say like it made me uh, uh skip and sing in the rain. I mean, yeah. You know how these things work sometimes sure. like Sometimes sad music gets you through the sad stuff. Right, you know what I mean? I see what you mean. You yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. this album I think has kind of like a little Ferris wheel of emotions. Sure. You know? So um it kind of doesn't dwell on one right. one like mode. It doesn't of, wallow in in that. You yeah, know, it's but, not all missing, it's not all new love, it's not, not all break, you know. Yeah, there's a searching aspect to yeah, it, especially that's, on that's, that this this constant searching and 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 you That's know, probably the constant yeah. like Right. Just someone like searching for um, something or someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is an interesting, um, just such a such a unique record. I mean, it, it's it, it, it seems almost a lot of the, the music, certainly not the lyrics, but the music seems a lot of it seems improvised. Oh, it was. I mean, is that right? Pretty close. I mean, I mean, uh, it sounds like grooves, you know, and, and building on grooves, you know, and coming down. And well, the story is that you know he worked on it all all summer here in Boston with these Boston musicians who were mostly young kids and some right. Berkeley students. And he called his band the Van Morrison Controversy while he was here. And he never time. used that name again. No, the <laughs> only time he uses that weird band name. And um, so you know. And then the shift from electric to acoustic also happens that summer during rehearsals and live shows. But when Warner Brothers finally gets interested, producer Louis Marenstein says, I have a vision for this. It's not the Boston kids playing with you. And Van kind of fought for them. So he had been playing with these guys for a long time. A couple months. Okay, a couple months. It's like... Everything happened. That's still strange to be having having a band and then suddenly going to the studio and say, I'm, "By the way, I'm not going to use you guys. I'm going to use these these hired, right? hired guns." Basically, the producer was so in charge. I mean, today we joke about like you know people who want to mess with your artistic vision, but right. it was every producer was messing with your artistic <laughs> at that time. Vision yeah, and was expected right. to. That's interesting and, though too you know, because so many artists now produce their own records. Right. That's a but but back then yeah. that's an interesting point is the producers really had control of the They were really the in charge. But this is something that's interesting too. This this Lewis Mernstein, is that his name? Yeah, right. I mean that's a you you know your first instinct could be like, well why would he throw out the band? But if you listen to the record you think he had a real concept. Oh, here. brilliant. I mean No, he's a brilliant secret, concept. He is a right? secret architect and hero of the album. And it always 
bothers me when Van belittles him. Like, Interesting. Like, right. <laughs> like, I heard one interview. He's like, "Yeah, that guy was basically just getting the band sandwiches." But it's like, <laughs> no, he, he was. He had a vision. He chose the players. He chose the material, the order. You know, Lewis, had he heard? Had Lewis heard the Boston band at all? Yeah, or? yeah. He came to Boston and heard them at the catacombs. But first, he and heard, he didn't like it. Well, first he heard Van by himself on acoustic at Ace Recording Studio, and that's when he played the title track, Astro Weeks, and that's when he just started crying. Oh, I see. And Interesting. Lewis, and then he heard the Boston band do it, and maybe it didn't tra- quite translate or something. He liked this acoustic sound. He said, oh, this yeah. is interesting as kind of a trio, but he was like, I have the literally the greatest musicians in the world right, waiting for us. Richard and, Davis on bass, one of the great jazz right. bass yeah. players. I mean, Warren Smith on percussion, who's played with so many countless great jazz artists. Um, and, but there's an interesting story in the book where I think Jonathan Payne, they, he, he actually invites oh, them yeah. to the so, studio, right? So the Boston kids, in what you might consider either really kind or cruel by Warner <laughs> Brothers, they pay for them to sit on the couch and watch oh, it get God, made. that's got to be tough. So right? Tom Cabana's literal bass hero was Richard Davis. And oh, wow. So he, walked, okay. he watched his hero walk in and replace him. Wow. Now, Tom, said, as always said, he showed... Richard, some of the lines he had come up with on these songs. Sure, okay. Richard's always denied that, but the catacomb tapes um, prove that that's true. Oh, okay. Which is cool. Uh, Tom deserves some credit. Um, but uh, John Payne, the flute player, um, wasn't content to be just replaced and uh, just fi- badgered Lewis until he finally was let in the room. And the first time he's let in the room is the title track, Astro Weeks. And so that's that's John. The the book says there's a flute player that actually showed up. There is, but he uh, was kind of com- he's kind on he's on some tracks and no one is. knows his name. <laughs> <laughs> no one even knows you know all the wow. string overdubs. No one knows those names either. Oh, interesting. Um, wow. They're not in the Warner archives. That's so, so strange. Even back then, they were really good at crediting. I mean, compared to now, you, you know, I know. I mean, you go to Spotify and there's no credits anywhere. Right. But right. now, but that was one of the great things about that era is you could go to the record. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, look, we got the vinyl here. Yeah. And you'll is see Richard the, Davis even listed on yeah, this? Yeah, yes, they are. Yes. Yeah. You'll see the main players listed, but not not the overdubs, uh string players and Okay. Um you know. Interesting. Uh it's interesting. I I would think even if it wasn't true, people would come out of the woodwork and say, Yeah, second, I played strings on this. Right. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So Jonathan ended up on the session just for John Payne sheer, he's yeah. he begs his way in. Lewis uh-huh. Lewis claims John was like crying. <laughs> He was like, John was crying, begging me to get in the room. And he knew it was special. He, John did he know, it was special. know it was special. Yeah. yeah, it was something special. And um, and then um, and then just knows exactly what to do on on Astro Weeks and then other a couple other songs that he's on on the record. So so the so you've listened to those Catacombs tapes and, and yeah, so that's and, interesting and, yeah. and you know a lot of the book is almost like a detective story in trying to find <laughs> yeah. to find these tapes you know and it's interesting so I think you ended up at Peter Wolf's place to, so how did Peter well, Wolf get what is his he, he ended up with the tapes somehow how did that when this all started there was so little about Van, uh, the the word was Van Morrison lived in Boston right before he made Astral Weeks and so when I became obsessed with the album and I was also a lifelong Boston resident. I it, I was like, what is going on here? Right. If there's a connection, I need to know. And then, you know, the back, before I even learned that, the back sleeve of the record there has this poem signed by Van Morrison. 
and it lists Cambridgeport, Hyannis, and oh, Cape there it is, Cod. right? Yeah, Cambridgeport, now, Cape, and all these Boston. When I first cities. read that poem, I thought uh, those must be cities in uh, Ireland as well, because it ma- it made that little sense to me. Right, know? right. So, um, but one of the first things I did learn was that Peter Wolf was his only friend or his best friend here in Boston, mm-hmm. and that he had made a recording of Van's Boston band. So that was like oh, I that see. initially that immediately set up like a holy grail for the story. Right, right. So how did you how did you find out that he had hit a recording just through the grapevine? Yeah, it was okay. it, that the the fact that he did have it was in a few books and articles. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. And so, um, so this must have been sixty seven or eight. No, sixty eight. He makes okay, that recording in the summer of sixty eight, okay. August. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I went over Peter Wolf's place one night and uh, interviewed him. And then he showed me the boxes, the tapes, and I said, would you ever let me hear these? And he said, um, if I got them professionally mastered and transferred, sure. And then he never spoke to me again. Interesting. So, so that's the, so then I do set off on like, I, uh, like you said, a detective story yeah, to figure out right. another way to hear it. But now everyone can hear it. Because I saw they were re-released. We can get into that later yeah, or now or yeah, whatever. But right. Van did this very strange move possibly inspired by the book, where he put them on sale on iTunes UK for a day. With a, just a bland cover. Right, right. right. like a yeah. no-nothing release. And um, and then confirmed later it was a copyright preservation I move. See. So To get it under his own name, put it out so it's... To yeah, preserve a right. copyright after 50 years, you just have to have it on sale for a brief moment. I it's see. whatever. Interesting. Legal. So, but he... I'm probably hoping no one would notice. People noticed... And then I, <laughs> I noticed, and then I made a lot of big hay about it. And anyways, you know, he took it down, but it's out there. Oh, he took it down. Okay, you can't buy it, yeah. but if you know what I mean, right? You can get your you hands can find on it. it. Yeah, yeah. And right. so it's kind of this. I took no pleasure in you know for months after the book came out, I was just fielding emails. Um, can I hear it? Can I hear it? Can I hear it? Can I, people were starting to bother my wife. Oh my god! Um, wow. So I'm wow. really glad that. They're it's out, out there. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't have to not come only, through you. Not yeah. only in the fact that I won't be bothered anymore, but um, just it's awesome. It's so beautiful to hear, right? And it's it's such a boon to read along and listen. Yes, near right. the end of the book when I feel like here. Exactly. It. I mean, you didn't know how the book would end at some point, right? right? You that was kind of a question mark. It could have you could have not found it. You could have right. You could you could have found it, and it might not have been that interesting. You That's know, right. My, right. My editor and I we had. Yeah, let's see, three or four. We were like, okay, the book end. How does the book end if we don't find the tapes? How does the book end if we find the tapes and they're good? How does the book end if we find the tapes and they're boring? As you're writing it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So if there's like a feeling of like, how does this end in discovery in the book? It's it's pretty literal. Like, yeah. I didn't know wow. what was going to happen as we were like barreling through. God, it must have taken you forever to. I mean, because it's not just the writing; it's the research, right? It's yeah, all the research yes, involved. Yes. Yeah, must have taken you. A couple, how long well, did it take you from start to finish? To- it was kind of insane because um, from the time I signed to when it needed to be locked, I think was um, uh, under a year and a half okay. um, because we knew it. we wanted to come out published during the 50-year anniversary of the year I'm oh, talking I about. See. Right. So right. Um, that was way too short of a time than I would have yeah, that's really fast. With. So yeah. I would write in the morning and research at night. Wow. And then okay. phone calls and interviews on the weekends. Wow. Wow. You were just <laughs> I, um, I was like burning well, the midnight oil on Well, I love the record so much, and I was like, well, I'll probably never get a book deal again, so I can survive anything for a year and a half. So. Wow. Wow. Good for you. 
Well, I mean, we should talk about another interesting aspect of this is how how Fan got into Boston in the first place. Oh, yeah. Well, Burt Burns, who um, uh, was a songwriter himself, um, Here Comes the Night. He did Brown Eyed Girl. Well, he produced Brown Eyed Girl. Okay, right. And um, he signed Fan to his records, Bang Records. And it was a terrible record deal. And Mm. Burt had also become very friendly with uh, various members of the mob throughout the mid-60s. Wow. So when he unexpectedly died in late 67... Um, the person who suddenly was in charge of Van Morrison for Bang Records was this guy named Carmine Wassel Denoya, who was a, just a mobster. <laughs> he would like his jobs before Bert died were like breaking up record bootlegging operations with a hammer wow. or dang- dangling DJs out a window if they weren't <laughs> playing their records. <laughs> so, besides Peter Wolf, that was the other person I wanted to talk to immediately when I started working on the story, and um, he. And this he, is in New York. I went he to was, New York to okay, talk to... Right. I, I cold called Carmine, and he answered his phone. Hello, City Morgue. So I thought <laughs> I had the right guy. He <laughs> since passed on, um, but I did spend a memorable, right. memorable afternoon at his house. Too. I remember reading that and thinking, <clears throat> wow, you actually got a hold of this guy. That yeah, kind of it's amazing what you do. You know, before, I was, before the magazine piece or the book um, deal... Uh, doing these things would have maybe felt a little stalkery, but once you once you're actually officially being paid to do it, it's like, well, this is my job. Yeah, I, right. You have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. So but that's again, interesting. That so they kind of had to escape. He and Janet. Oh yeah. So Carmine got increasingly scary uh, with Van and Janet. Janet Planet, his American new wife, um, and Carmine smashed a guitar over Van's head. And then they came home one night, and there were bullet holes in their hotel door. And then one night they were in there, in the room, and Carmine was just banging on their door, howling, you're finished in the music industry, you hear me, you hear me, screaming. And they were legit scared. So Janet told me that um, a, 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 a burgeoning uh, music manager from Boston just reached out and said, if you move here, I'll I'll, I'll help you guys out, you'll get gigs, and... <laughs> And they did. And wow. so in early 1968, they moved to Green Street in Cambridge. And uh, they were broke. Van's career was in the gutter. And he just started to try to regroup and figure out how to put this all together. And He started that, putting a band together with Tom. and, and Yep. Uh, he goes through kind of three distinct versions of, of musicians. But Tom, the bass player, is the constant. Right. He's in all three. Um but yeah, they and they go crazy gigging around New England all summer. It's a real. I really love the story because, you know, now we know how it ends and that Van's a musical legend. He's one of the most famous songwriters ever. But there was while he's experiencing that summer, there's no guarantees. It's like he doesn't know, right? And it doesn't look good. Could have gone either way. <laughs> yeah, right, really. It looks really. Yeah. Um, it looks really grim the whole summer. Yeah, and Boston isn't rolling out any red carpets for him. Like. After some gig, somebody walked up, a Boston kid walked up to him and said, you wrote that song, Brown Eyed Girl? And he goes, yeah. And the kid said, uh, when I first heard it, I said, man, the Rolling Stones have really gone downhill. <laughs> <laughs> and then Van asked his 16-year-old guitarist, he's like, what, what, what did he mean by that? And he was like, ah, oh, forget it, Van. Yeah, Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah, there's so many great stories in the book. I mean, the book is not really... You know, if you look at the cover, you think, "Oh, this is this is this might be just an Astro Weeks um, behind the scenes." Right. But it's that, and, and but it's not. It's much more. It's more of a uh, history of Boston, and and so many of the. It reminds me of a book. I mentioned this to you before. 
Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, which is New York. Yes. And which is a great book. Yes. 19, Will Hermes, 1970s. Precisely. Yep. And it's he kind of connects all the dots in, yep. of that short period. And, and I love how you do the same thing here. There's that sort of connecting the dots. There's so much overlap that happens. Yeah. You know, between a lot of these a lot of these people and musicians. Well, that was the crazy thing. Like <clears throat> once we came up with the conceit um of, you know, how to how to blow up that story into a whole book. I was just I was shocked. Anytime I wanted a connection to be there, it would be. <laughs> it was just, you know, wow. it's a small city, it's a small scene. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. by there's kind of two main storylines, the two main you know, kind of tour guides through the city in the year in the book are Van and uh, Mel Lyman, who was a, a folky turned guru who claimed he was God and right. ran a cult. Yeah, that's that's a crazy that's a crazy story. And um, you know, by the time John Payne, the Astro Weeks flute player, told me, "Oh yeah, I went up, I went up to their commune once, and they read my uh, um, they read my sign, and they were very excited. I was a Capricorn, like the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I was like, oh my." There, I Another literally overlap. just merged yeah. the two <laughs> stories right there. So, um, uh, yeah, I was. It was so crazy how um, everything, oh, you know, kind of serpentine. Is that what you? Because you had written the article originally. Is that what you kind of the 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 idea to do the book was to explode it not just to the Astro Week story, but everything in in Boston leading up to that. You know, there's a right. lot of stuff in here. There's the Boston Strangler. There's the right. There's the uh, the silver uh, WGBA oh, show. Yeah, the TV yeah. show. Well, I was okay. So Ed Park, my editor, and I. Um, uh, well, he was he he was like, um, you know, maybe these other crazy things were happening in the city that year, and I was like, I don't know. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I and then as soon as I found Lyman and the commune and the cult. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that's gold. I, right? yeah. I, well, I just, I was like, I see, I, I just saw like a storyline. Wow. And then, Great. and then I just started making up these rules. Like every story had to be anchored in Boston and the year. It could go to other cities, other years, but it had to have the, the strong anchor. And then anything to do with like, um, obviously music or art creation went to the top of the list. Anything with like people getting confused between art and reality went to the top of the list because that was this interesting theme I saw again and yeah. again and again. And then, um, and then, you know, and then intersection stories, uh, were a priority. It was just about kind of, it was like making a quilt. Yeah. That's yeah. the way it feels. Yeah, yeah. It does feel that way. It doesn't feel, but it all seems connected. It doesn't feel like suddenly you're out in left field, you know, it, hopefully it, not. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it does. I mean, that must've been the challenge is right, to make right. it so that it all tied together and flowed and, and not like, oh, now we're going to talk about the James Brown concert out of the blue. Out of the blue. Right. Yeah. yeah. It does really, yeah. it does flow really well. Yeah. yeah. I but we should talk about, about Mel Lyman more. So he opens your book. Right. And and my wife started reading the book the same time I did. She says, oh, God, he starts with the most popular concert. You know, it's yeah. the, it's the it's Bob Dylan goes, goes electric. Like, right. God, everybody knows this. I said, no, 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 keep reading. Because there's a twist at the end of it. Right. So I didn't know about this. This uh, The ending of the concert is basically he's playing this harmonica solo. Right. <laughs> and that's why, well, I wanted to open the book with, like, to ground everyone in something they really right, knew. Right. And then immediately... Yeah, turn the tables that. on it. Right. Because yeah. I was, right. I felt that way when I learned this. Uh, so um, in Newport 65, Dylan went electric. Everyone's uh, perturbed by it. And Mel Lyman, who's been a part of uh, the festival for a few years with the Jim Quest and Jug Band, uh, after the, all the acts are done, 
with the lights off on stage, he unscheduled Coda just goes on <laughs> and does this like twenty minute harmonica solo of rock and of the song Rock of Ages as a, a dirge for the death of folk music because Dylan wow. has just killed it. Because there's it. all these stories about Pete Seeger <laughs> right, pulling right, the plug right. and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, and now right. here's another yeah. weird detail. But I'd never heard that. Until I know that book. I'd yeah. never heard that. It's such a funny, funny story. But that's wild. And so I thought, um, and uh, you know, so much of um, Dylan going electric seemed to trigger a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of um, stories about, oh, should we go psychedelic? Should we be acoustic? Should we, you right. know, the folk scene's right. dying. Oh, this, that, you know. So for you, a you bunch think, of reasons, it you, seemed to like. You think Dylan going electric may have may have caused other musicians in that time to kind of, kind of rethink. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Or rebel against it. You right. know, like the but line. But second guess maybe their instrumentation, for yeah. example. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Interesting. For sure. Yeah. Well, we have a track that that uh, um, you pulled up here of the J- Jim Queskin band. Now, Mel played harmonica in this band. Yeah, right? I think that, the track we're going to play. This is like um, '71, and uh, I think Mel sings on this too. Stealing, uh, uh, stealing. Yeah, this is after Jim breaks up the uh, Jug Band. Put your arms around me like a circle around the sun I want you to love me, baby, like my easy rider done If you don't believe I love you, look what the hole I'm in If you don't believe I'm sinking, look what a fool I've been Stealing, stealing Pretty mama, don't you tell on me I'm stealing back to my same old used to be Dig it now Hold on, man. I cried. Stealing. 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 Stealing
So that's that's Mel with the weird, the weird voice. That uh, the chipmunk, Wizard voice. of Oz, Munchkin esque <laughs> voice you hear in the background is the voice of Mel Lyman. Um, yeah, and that's from a 1971 album called America, with um, uh, Jim Queskin's the main name on the sleeve there. But and you met you met Jim Queskin through this book, is that right? I interviewed him a bunch of times did, for okay. the book. Yeah, for sure. Um, Jim, it was really interesting to me. Queskin Jug Band was pretty popular throughout the 60s. I mean, they weren't the Beatles, but as as one of their members said, we weren't the Beatles, but we could do anything we want. Like, they they would, like, play bills with Janis Joplin and the Doors. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, they, were, they were doing well. Wow. But um, Queskin, um, Lyman had been in the band with him, but left to pursue other things. What those other things turned out to be was starting a commune on Fort Hill, Roxbury. And Queskin eventually thought, well, this band is kind of pointless compared to what the miracles that are happening up on Fort Hill. And he disbanded the jug band and moved up there. Did Mel convince him to do that or he just did it on his own? He did it on his own. Wow. He so actually, he was kind of a follower of Mel, too. Yeah. he, he Even st- though he led the band. Right. He started out <laughs> as Mel's boss. Wow. And then so weird. the roles yeah. totally reversed to where. Wow. Um, but, uh, but after Queskin moved to Fort Hill and quit, uh, dissolved his own band. Then they had this act called the Mel Lyman family that started to perform around Boston. And sometimes at those shows, um, they wouldn't even get to the music. They would just argue with the audience about whether they were spiritually ready to hear this music. <laughs> I asked Jim this if they were crazy. like, I wanted, I really wanted there to be like a live recording. Of, oh, that would be great. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> right. Jim was like, no, we do not have any. We destroyed those. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I I chose Mel and Van as the kind of two um, people to take us through the story because they were both like pursuing some kind of spirituality through music. They were both on Warner Brothers. They were both in Boston in the summer of 68. And then when the story starts out, like Van is down on his luck and kind of not known and Lyman's famous 
at the time, infamous at least. And then when the story ends, the roles have been totally reversed. Like Van Morrison's one of the most famous singers in the world. Interesting. Right. And, Ly- and Lyme is literally missing. Yeah. We, d- we don't know how he, he died, right? Well, the question. There's, a, there's an answer to when and where and how he died in the book that's kind of the first time that any conjecture has ever been in print um, that an, an anonymous source told me, which I trust. Um, but, um, you know, most of the book, while I'm being a detective searching for those catacomb tapes. I'm also trying to figure out if Mel actually died because <clears throat> the writer of the Rolling Stone expose on the Lyman family in the early seventies, David Felton, uh, he also edited, um, Hunter S. Thompson's fear and loathing. He got, <laughs> he, he put it in my head that maybe Mel faked his own death. Oh, wow. He was like, like an yeah, Andy Kaufman kind yeah, of thing. He like, yeah. He was like, it's totally right. possible. He just gets sick of being God and abandoned his followers and moved to France or, yeah, right. you know, um, and so, uh, I did follow that thread for a long time. Interesting. And, um, um, but, but you, you said so you had a conjecture in the book. I don't remember what that was that, that he did die in some way. I, I, I wind up there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there is literally no death certificate. And, um, so he's essentially a missing person, which wow, I think is pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is weird. You know, yeah. and, um. You yeah, know, the last time strange. I the last time I interviewed Jim Queskin, it was before he was about to play show. I was backstage. It was I was kind of winding up the book, and I had these, this is Passim, right? No, it was. Oh, okay. the, the, I thought the I original. That's, that, the that's the original interview. Okay, yeah. But when I I wanted to hit him one more time because I had to finish up. Oh, I see. I had some right. lingering questions, and I also wanted to give him one more chance to not be mysterious about Mel's death. What happened to Mel, right? And so I asked you know these ten other questions, and then I, I said, okay, so um. I have to ask you, why were you um, so mysterious about Mel's death? And um, he instantly burst into tears and stormed wow. off, and he yelled at me, it's nobody's business. He put a swear word in, though, <laughs> and uh, stormed off to the bathroom. I felt awful. Wow. But also, you know. There's what, something going on right, there. Wow, right. wow. That's heavy. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, let's let's get into... Um, the Velvet Underground, because we were just talking about that. I just went to see the the exhibition in New York, and there's a, so many great stories in this book. I mean, it it this book is really an ode to Boston in a lot of ways. I mean, not many people knew that Van Morrison's developed Astral Weeks here. Velvet Underground had a bigger audience here than they did in New York. Yeah, right. Well, from like uh, I think sixty-seven to seventy. They played Boston like something like sixty. Is that right? Something that times, times. Wow. and New York three times, and those three times were private shows. Basically, they Interesting. when when they were finished with Warhol being their manager, um, their new manager, Steve Sesnick, who had an association with the Boston Tea Party, he seemed to have the strategy of I'm going to make them big in Boston. Other people had this idea. Was he in Boston? How did he? He was in New York, but he was he was coming to Boston a lot and and kind of glomming onto the Tea Party oh, success. I see. Right. The Boston Tea Party was um, uh, the first like major rock club in Boston, and um, the Velvet Underground just played there all the time. And um, this would have been sixty seven, sixty eight time frame. Sixty nine too. Sixty nine. Yeah. Okay. It's um, it's kind of when they stop being a Warhol spectacle and become, you know, a legit band that can stand on their own. And um, you could, there's a lot of cool velvet bootlegs that were recorded at the Tea Party, and they're really great. Or do you have 
Do you have those? Those, yeah, we can pull one up. They're on YouTube. Um, remember, I sent you that other link. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll look that up. If we pull one of those right. up, we can find right. it. Yeah. But the um, the the one thing I wanted to ask was in the in the book. There's there is discussion about Andy Warhol being angry about um, kind of being severed. Yeah. Do we don't do we know why that why they because Andy was such a huge part of the band even becoming known. Right. I think Right. Was the band behind that or were the lawyers behind that? And, and oh no, that, no, no. Happen? I, I I'm pretty sure it was Lou being proud of his songwriting and wanting to if 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 you're associated with Warhol, it's the Warhol show. Mm-hmm. You know, but right. the, he was he wanted to at least try to step out of that I see. You know? Right, right, right. I mean, interesting. Because he loves Andy. He always talks about how Andy's he, a oh, genius. He did, yes. And to this day, you know, at least until he passed, he would always talk about, you yeah. know, so. But I guess you're right. I mean, if you're if you're under Andy's spell, then you've got the banana yeah. on the cover, and it's more about him than about the, the totally. songs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That yeah. Makes sense. But Boston Tea Party was, was um, where was that located? On uh, East Berkeley Street in the South End. The building's okay. still there. Oh, Okay. Yeah, what is it, it now? It's condos, and the first floor <laughs> is a Seven Eleven. But the um, <laughs> but if you flip um, do you have white light, white heat? I don't. I don't. Okay. Have that well, if you, if you, if, you, if the listeners at home have white light, white heat, look at the back sleeve because the the band photo on the back sleeve of white light, white heat is them in front of the Boston Tea Party. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you can um, and you can kind of look at the architectural details of the arch they're standing in and go there tonight. Interesting. Still, right. Still there. So are they, did they record that in New York? Or Yes, they recorded okay. all the albums in New York. Okay. The bootlegs, a lot of the bootlegs come from Boston. I see. Um, and they were, they, and then they find John, they kind of fire everybody at Boston shows, like Nico plays her final VU show in uh, Boston. Uh. John Cale plays his final VU show in Boston. They hire, um, uh, Doug Ewell from right. Boston. That's uh, right. He was from Boston. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of make all these. Th- there's a whole chapter on just. I just kind of like linger on VU as a Boston band. Yes, right, right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of fun to do. And by the end, after Lou quits, well, that's real controversial. Because the, so many all, people say it's not. It's not even developed underground. I know. Thing. I know. But it's uh, to me that's so interesting when a band like. Does it still count if, the, <laughs> yeah. if legally someone's running around with the name? But by the end, it's Doug Ewell, two other Boston guys who were in that great Boston garage band, The Lost. You get Walter Powers and Willie, uh, Willie, Willie Loco, Loco Alexander. And, right. uh, and then Mo. Um, oh, Mo is still in? Uh, for a while with those oh, two, oh, yeah. Interesting. yeah. I didn't know that. But then, no. There's, there's even a version <laughs> without any originals. Wow, that's so um, weird. So, like, uh, by the end, the Velvet Underground is literally a Boston bar band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crazy. That's yeah. just insane. Yep. I mean, but it's similar to the Van Morrison thing, a lot of that, uh, I mean, you, I guess you could make an argument that, that a lot of those, those Van, that Velvet Underground records were developed here in the sense that they, they performed them live here. Maybe, I mean. Maybe they rehearsed them in New York. I don't, I, I don't put too much in that in the book because I don't have the evidence like I did with the band stuff but I just know they they felt emboldened as a live band here and why were they not accepted in New York so much I read all kind of horror stories where they Lou Lou talked about some they played some club and and there was a a fight broke out they were they started playing one of the droney stuff and you know it's not in the book because I I didn't read or hear this till after but someone told me that Lou had like 
kind of screwed so many people over. I had so many bad relationships that looking into a New York audience was full of bad memories for them. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of interesting interesting to me. Um, The manager of the Tea Party, Steve Nelson, told me that eventually New York's diehard VU fans figured out they aren't playing here anymore. So he said you could always tell when they took the drive because, like, the Boston audience would be kind of, like, schleppy clothes-wise and these people in furs would walk in and like lavishly dressed and he'd be like there's the a car of new york kids just got here right yeah that's funny yeah there could be something to that i just i just find that interesting that that boston was more accepting than than new york but maybe maybe there's something to that well and you know so like i just said you can't i can't i don't really speak to like um, them developing their songs there but what they do do at the boston tea party is literally teach jonathan richmond how to play guitar backstage oh yeah that's because right. he's like a teenage kid who keeps sneaking in and he loves the velvet underground he's like their mascot sometimes he's driving that band around in his dad's car wow <laughs> around wow. boston which uh, i just love that image that's great yeah jonathan richmond's a huge uh, velvet fan let's play let's play um let's play a velvet underground piece okay white light white heat might be a good one sure Oh, I'm glad I said that. 
So So I think this is this is the sister Ray from Boston, right? Boston Tea Party in the background, right? Yeah, we got May of 1969 here. It's a 25-minute version. <laughs> I think we'll talk a little yeah. bit on top of it, right. at least till Lou starts singing. It says speed corrected. It sounds like somebody did some work on. on well, this, you know, a lot of uh, the Boston VU bootlegs are known as the professor tapes. It's because a Harvard professor was. Um, really interested in the band and I guess in recording live shows and they all came from him ah uh, okay interesting yeah so yeah this is it's pretty out there because he doesn't start singing I listened to this before he doesn't start singing until 10 minutes in or something yeah. like that yeah and who's in the band at this point uh 69 so Kale's out Yule is in so okay. it's uh Sterling Mo, Lou that like the room would be full of what he called ghost tones because you couldn't tell where certain sounds were coming from which person Boston Tea Party yeah but specifically with the Velvet Underground they would create like when they started really giving the feedback and just everyone blasting certain sounds Jonathan would be like there's no one on stage who could be making that sound (laughs) overtones yes ghost tones he called them yeah um 
we have this uh, Lester Banks. Lester Banks, you know, White Light, White Heat, and Astro Weeks kind of bookend the year, 1968, release-wise. Oh, yeah, right. The, uh, White Light starts the year. Astro Weeks comes out at the very right. end of the year. And Lester Banks, I think, um, in his famous essay about Astro Weeks, also talks about White Light, White Heat as one of his I favorites see. of all time. Right. So let's read what he wrote about VU in 1980. This is pretty cool. I belong to the generation for whom the Velvet Underground was our Beatles and Dylan combined. I don't care who did feedback first or if Lou Reed sang like Dylan. Modern music begins with the Velvets, and the implications and influence of what they did seems to go on forever. Black Angel's death song alone is still ahead of its time, and of course all the other stuff sounds right up to date over a decade later. Who else has created a body of work of which this can be said? Almost all the artists and albums since, which have mattered the most to me, have been blatantly influenced by them. The Stooges, Sticky Fingers, and probably Exile, even. Roxy Music and Eno's work, Patti Smith, Richard Hell and the Voivoids, David Bowie, if you like. The only thing I think would be a mistake in thanking them for this precious gift would be romanticizing them too much. <laughs> wow, that's a great that's a great that's great writing. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I read somewhere that someone said, you know, the Velvet Underground was one of those bands that everybody wanted to form a band that oh, listened yeah. to it, you know. Well that um uh, it's Eno said it. People, Eno, okay, right. I forget. People um it's one of those quotes that took on a life of its own. Yeah. I think he said... I probably well, got it wrong. Everyone gets it wrong. Yeah. I forget what the original is, but basically it was like, the point was they weren't like pop stars, but they, everyone who heard it like probably started to tinker around with right. making their, their right. own music. Right. And that's kind of the music I've always loved too, is the kind of bands that kind of not only created just these amazing songs, but also gave you the feeling like, oh, I could do this I too. I could do that too. Yeah. yeah, it's not out of your range. Right, it's not, right. It's not about virtuosity. It's about feeling and... and right. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And Pixies were a band like that too, mm-hmm. that people said, oh, wow, you know, they got, they've got the... Um, and, and it was also interesting, you know, Lou has mentioned this before, that they had two females... Um, yeah, female drummer, which was which was unusual. Yeah, well, um, a Boston Herald um, live review is like, if you can believe it, they have a female drummer. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh wow, yeah. that's funny. That's really funny. Yeah, I mean that that's you know so they were ahead of their time in a lot of ways. I think that um, kind of every man quality, you know, that they that they had, um, they weren't um, you know they weren't dressed dressed up you know on stage. You know, they just came out and kind of. And played these amazing, amazing sounds, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, super inspiring. But the, um, it's interesting you mentioned the Andy Warhol thing because it didn't occur to me that, that yeah, I guess he would want to separate at some point, separate himself from from uh, from that because it was really lose, lose thing, you know. Um, he, I mean, he he did most of the songwriting, right? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, John Cale was Cale's in there too, in there and, too then, yeah. and then and then and then, um, let's see. Yule, does he do any? No, he doesn't do any songwriting, but he sings a lot of the. Vo- he ends up singing a lot of Lou's lead vocals on that uh, Loaded in uh, the self titled album. Like songs that for years I thought, oh, that's Lou Reed singing real pretty. That's Doug Yule. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the. Um, like, take a song like um, Femme Fatale. Um, the. Um, did. Lou, Lou wrote that song for Nico, right? 
I believe so, yeah. 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 He, he wrote the lyrics, right? She yeah. didn't write the lyrics. Right, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I think on the box that you can hear the demos where it's uh, Lou or John Cale singing oh, really? these songs. Yeah, okay. or a couple of a couple of the Banana Record songs that Nico sings, you can hear them oh, do the demo.
Playing music from and associated with the book Astral Weeks, Secret History of 1968. The author is here, Ryan Walsh. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. So, this yeah, is this fun. is, this is uh, um, I guess that was Jonathan Richmond, right? Modern Lovers. Yes. Astral Plane, which, right. you know, has must have something to do with Astral Weeks. That's my uh, thesis, is that on a, like a, uh, an album just full of like, Songs about like longing for girls, it sticks out as a, <laughs> yes, sort, right. as a sore thumb. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, his obsession with Astral Weeks and uh, and also kind of like the occult books Lou Reed was slipping him backstage at the tea party, I think kind of pointed him in the right. direction. So he must have been in a lot. Song. He must have been in a lot of those tea party shows. Right? Oh, yeah. He was hanging out. A, right, yeah. Right. And someone, someone recently got in touch with me who um, got, <laughs> got to talk to Jonathan and. Uh, I guess Jonathan approved of the book, and then Great. and then and then said to the guy, "But I didn't tell him everything." And then raised his eyebrows, which I think is like the perfect Jonathan Richmond <laughs> reaction. Uh-huh. I couldn't ask for a better. That's uh, great. <laughs> you know, I wonder. I wonder if Van has read this book by now. I don't know. It's in interviews. It seems like maybe he has. I can't tell. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he put that that record out. Right, I know. Kind of makes me wonder if at right. least he knew of the, he obviously knows of the book, but he you know, he must have he must be at least some concern about copyright and that sort of thing. Right. But I'd be surprised if he hasn't flipped through it. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, let's talk about the Boston sound because that you know, when I first read about this this thing, it sounded like almost a publicity stunt. Oh yeah. MGM puts an ad somewhere and says, "This is the Boston Sound," and the chapter opens like the band doesn't even know what these other bands are. Right. So, right. The, in um, well, the the um, the San Francisco Sound had already made some record labels rich. Oh, is and that it, what it was? And it was okay. a re- and it was a real. But the problem is, it was a real organic scene that they found and then, right. <laughs> and then promoted and then became right. wealthy off it. What it came out of the bands, not some so, PR guy. Well, yeah. So some record suits were like, well, we just got, this is about picking a city. <laughs> so th- they were, they looked at Boston and were like, oh my God, so many college kids. Let's just find some bands there and let's call it the Boston Sound. I see. And, and so they picked three green bands that had not put out records yet. And they said, the sound heard around the world, big, huge ad and billboard, the, introducing the Boston Sound. And it was the bands were Ultimate Spinach, Beacon Street Union, and Orpheus. And uh, n- none of those bands had heard of each other. <laughs> and it was how Beacon Street Union learned of the title of their album and that it was even coming out. <laughs> like um, The kids, they were just kind of used as fuel in this machine. Right, you know? right. And I felt bad for these. I knew, I knew how these kids felt. Like I interviewed them all when they were you know, mid-70s. But I, when they talked about kind of being screwed over by these by the record label um because this uh, this backlash it's kind of the first time kids smelled a rat like i right, think we're being sold right. something that's uh, inauthentic here and it wasn't their fault it was the marketing fault and the pushing it down everyone's throat they were asking them to tour as well yeah, the, the, all three did promotional tours in fact <laughs> when orpheus find one of the Boston sound bands um had a minor hit um can't find the time um someone Somewhere decided, well, um, 
I can make more money if there's like multiple Orpheuses. So there, there were fake versions of that band tour. I read that. That's wild. Um, and all they had to do was know the hit song and they could play whatever they wanted the rest of the set. And one of the fake versions of Orpheus featured uh, comedian Chevy Chase on drums. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. It's really strange. That's really yeah, because Chevy Chase was also in another Boston Sound band, if you can believe it. Well, you, you brought up, you have a playlist here, and one of the bands is Earth Opera. Is, oh, yeah. Are, is they, are they part of that scene? Yeah, they are. Okay. They were lumped into the Boston Sound. Peter Rowan, who went on to be you know famous bluegrass singer-songwriter, but he decided to go like deep prog rock for an album um, associated with Boston Sound. And the song's called The Red Sox Are Winning. It's deeply weird. And um, yeah, let's hear it, and then we'll talk about it. Ryan Walsh is here. His new book is Astral Weeks. Thanks for listening. When you are gone, I keep track of the time in my diary line by line. And the past is behind. It was so long ago when believing and beauty celebrated the birth. It was green, lovely green. We could fly like the queen. But nowadays no one seems to care. They laugh at me. I spend my Saturdays alone in the mirror Arranging my hair In the end, what is there? To talk of passing time Should I turn off the TV Or go to the racetrack And bet on the dog And the weather is strange No summer this year In the days of the war But the Red Sox are winning
So that's Earth Opera. The Red Sox are winning. Did you want to say something about that? I mean, that was kind of before the Red Sox were well, a championship baseball team, right? Peter told me he wrote it during the summer of 67, which I guess was, I'm bad at sports, so forgive me, listeners, but the impossible summer, the impossible dream for the Red Sox. I get that summer they were winning. Oh, okay. But his point of the song was, uh, like, people care about the baseball team, like all my friends are dying in Vietnam. That was right. kind of the idea of the song. Right, right. So um, that's, it's kind of satire there when he puts in the sound effects yeah, right, at the right. end. <laughs> but I, I think that song's pretty uh, adventurous. Right. And this one is Beacon Street Union. This is another one of the... Yes. One of the Boston, yeah. Boston sound bands. So, you know, they recorded their album... Um, and it came out, and uh, there were things different about it that <laughs> surprised them. For instance, famous music producer Tom Wilson reciting a poem to open the album wow. was uh, something they didn't know was going to be on the record. And then, oh, the band didn't know. No, so the band listened to it, and they so they had put all yes. this stuff on it. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so many bands would put on the finished record and be like, uh, "Like I didn't even know they were hiring oh, an orchestra." You imagine that, Jesus. Yeah. So they put um, Beacon Street Union on a promotional tour, and the first gig was opening up for mc5 in detroit oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and they had all this i guess gear that was given to them by uh, um, a deal with a company and they didn't know how to use it and it was like a nightmare and and then when they finally got to la for the la show like the record company had a party for them but um they were all underage so none of them were allowed in <laughs> like it was just like a comedy of errors right but right. um a lot of the book feels that way it's just comedy of errors with these bands to- totally, that, yeah. and I and it's both funny to me, but I also like it. Also hurts my heart because I know exactly <laughs> yeah. what that feels like. Right. <laughs> yeah, being a touring musician yourself. Totally, yeah, yeah. totally right. Right. Well, let's so, play some of this. Yeah, let's hear a little Beacon Street Union. Uh, this is Mystic Morning. So Ryan Walsh is here. The book is Astro Weeks, and this is Free Association. Stick around. <laughs> Thank you. 
if I hadn't known what I know now, I wouldn't have become famous for one thing. <laughs> then, uh, when I when I was starting, I you, there, was, there wasn't any choices, right? You know, there's a thing about people that write about music that you know they don't really know anything about it, and they assume a lot of stuff. Like they assume that you had choices and you were like that you thought it out and all that. I, you know, so I didn't I didn't really have any choices, and I get put in situations where. I get ripped off, you know, time and time and time and time again, ad nauseum. So then I had to become um, something I didn't want to be, just to make a living. I mean that that's interesting because your book actually actually speaks to that. Like everything was out of his control. You know, not only that's, like, that's totally consistent with your book. Not only like is it out of circumstances out of his control, but he's trying to songwrite in a way where he like gets rid of his conscious mind. Oh, like, yeah, like right, trying to lose control right. of that as well. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. true in more than one way. Right. You know, like, right a, a few months, a month after the book came out, he put out a new album. He's on like a tear. He keeps releasing I new I saw albums. that one with the marionette. That's that's really that's that's a the, re, the Prophet Speaks is his brand new one. But there was one before that, too. He's before. putting out a ton of records. He put out two this year, right? Or, yeah. Wow. Yeah, like three within 18 months, wow. I think. So, anyways... He hates to do press. He hates interviews. But um, when he puts an album out, he has to. And there was a BBC interview with him, Van Morrison. Um, and it was like a month after the book came out. And you asked me if I thought he read it. This is the closest I've heard him say anything that indicated that maybe he had. They were like, they asked him about Astral Weeks. And he said, um, no, no, they they were talking to him about whatever. And he just segued into, he's like, and fake news. <laughs> I've been talking about fake news since day one, which, first of all, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and, he's, and he's like, journalists, they just make things up. And I'm like, okay. And then he goes, and Astro Weeks, segues right into Astro Weeks. Oh, wow. And he goes, I was 22 when I wrote it. I didn't know I have to answer for it my whole life. And I was like, well, that might have just been the review of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not sure, but maybe. That's um, your one-line review. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Put that on the front cover. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it's it's interesting his his reaction to Astro Weeks. So you know we're talking about Van Morrison obviously in Astro Weeks. The book is Astro Weeks, um, and we're talking with Ryan Walsh, the the author of the book. So the his reaction to the whenever whenever people ask him about this record, he always kind of you know poo poo's it. Um, at least in the interviews I've seen, he's kind of said, oh you know it was. But but then he did this reunion tour, so he must think fondly of it. He did this this well, tour where he he played the whole record, right? He. I've never heard someone give different, so many different answers and takes on the same piece of art that he made. <laughs> like he literally, it depends on the interview what he's going to say about it. But what I think happened was, you know, um, the record was a commercial failure, and it wasn't um, critically lionized for a long time. Like Lester Banks. Oh, is that true? Lester Banks doesn't even write that essay till ten years after. Oh wow! Like, so know, the thing a, that you were reading was a t- it came out ten years later. Right. Oh wow. Okay. Um, and so it takes decades for Astro Weeks to become like the masterpiece that we right, know it as right. now. So by the time the OO decade rolls around, I think Morrison was like, "Man, people cannot stop y- yammering about this record. I make no money off of it. I'm going to take it back by doing it live and releasing oh, I see. that as a That's live record." That's what that was about. I think so. Right. It was a way of reclaiming credit and money. I think. 
But interestingly, he hired two um, of the original musicians who play on the record, Jay Berliner, the guitarist, and Richard Davis. Oh, they're on the, the well, live show? he hires them, okay? Uh, and they show up. <laughs> now, story isn't over yet. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're brilliant jazz musicians, and what you hear on the record is them improvising and doing right and knocking right. it out of the right. park. That's what's so great about it. Yeah. Right. So they show up to rehearsal in Los Angeles in like 07, 08 or something. And every note they had played 40 years ago was written out on sheet music. Oh, God. And Somebody had transcribed that? You yes. You're kidding. And oh when, they, when they ignored it, they were told to stick to it. <laughs> but and I, I played if that. If you're right? not a musician and you just trust us that this is insane. This is an insane that thing to ask. absolutely insane. So Richard Davis refused and he was let go and oh told to go God. home. Oh Jay Berliner, the guitarist, pretended to follow along. Wow, that's hilarious. And just did what he wanted to do. Right. But um, Oh that, my God, that's like the what a story. The what strangeness, story. The, the like strange behavior, it just never ends. Like every story you can tell in association with this record has some very odd detail or angle to it. Well, this is a, an amazing book. I mean, we just touched on really the tip of the iceberg. There's so many great stories in here. Um, but I want to thank you for, for coming in. Oh, man, my pleasure. Thank yeah. you. What a, what a trip. I mean, uh, you know, um, congratulations on, on the book. And we should we should play another song off of this record, off Astro Weeks. Let's, we, I think, let's what play my favorite. It's the title track. The title track's my let's favorite, do it. too. Let's do that. And this is, this is local John Payne on flute. He runs the John Payne Music School in Brookline if you want to take some lessons. And um, uh, this is, I think, the first take. Oh, wow. Is that right? Yeah. And um, this is uh, quite a piece of music. Let's hear it. Thanks again. Ryan Walsh is here. His new book is Astro Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. This is Free Association. You're listening to WZBC 90.3, Boston College. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the ditch and the back roads stop Could you find me? Or would you kiss my eyes? To be born again From the far side of the ocean If I put the wheels in motion Then I stand with my arms behind me And I'm pushing out the door Could you find Showing pictures on the wall 
We'll spread in the hall I'm pointing a finger at me
another time In another place In another time In another place Another place. <laughs> 